Hello and welcome to People in the Know. I'm Ken Root. I'm retired from a long career in agricultural news broadcasting, but I'm still interested in the land, the people, and our continuing intrusion into the natural environment. Most people want to know your opinion and then decide whether they like you or not based on that. Well, I have hope more than opinion. There are many things I don't know, but I believe our cumulative knowledge can point the way to a bright future for our grandchildren. So I'm taking this opportunity to talk to people in the know about a wide variety of subjects. This program is sponsored by Concept by Iowa Hearing. Your hearing is our priority. Visit iowahearing.com or call 877-955-4020 for a free hearing screening. Hello, this is Ken Root. Brazil is an amazing agricultural country. Now, you may know it from the beauty of Rio de Janeiro or the Amazon rainforest, but the real strength of the country I'm contending during this half hour is in its agriculture. And much of its agricultural power has arisen in the last half century. I've been to Brazil several times beginning in 1983 and working through roughly 2012. And looking at it, I saw a tremendous amount of change and growth and increase in production of many crops, but the one we were most interested in, obviously, is soybeans, because the U.S. had the lock on soybean production, and now Brazil actually can be a larger producer of soybeans than the United States. Joining me is Nalash Yonke, who is a farm broadcaster with Illinois RFD Network, a Kansas State graduate, as I remember, a seasoned member of our press corps, and uh, based, obviously, in Illinois. Delos, when did you go to Brazil, and generally, how long was the trip you took there? Well, Ken, thank you so much for the invitation. I can't believe Ken Root is asking me questions. Uh, Your broadcaster, your career preceded mine a little bit, but, you know, you're somebody I've looked up to for a long time. So the fact that you want to talk to me is uh, pretty mind-boggling. So I, I appreciate that very much. Uh, to, to answer your question, though, we were in Brazil about 10 days, went there, I think flew down the 19th, got down there the 20th, and then came back uh, at the end of, of January. And uh, from, especially when we were at Monte Grosso for a few days, we were seeing the completion of sweeping harvest on several farms. And when you watch the completion of harvest, you know, or when you watch harvest take place, you are also watching planting season because as soon as that combine leaves an area, then fertilizer is being spread and corn or cotton is going in. So uh, you get to see both at the same time. Brazil is... uh country that developed its agriculture in the industrial age very quickly. When I was there in 83 to loss, I was with uh, Agriculture Secretary John Block, who mm. is a native of Illinois. Um, we flew into uh, Brasilia, and then we flew into Mato Grosso. 
But in that Mato Grosso state, which is quite large, uh, about the size of five Western states of the U.S., we only saw a few patches that we could tell were fields as we came out of the clouds. When I went back there in 2001, uh, it resembled the state of Illinois. Well, back in 2012, it looked more like Iowa. Uh, I mean, the amount of growth of agricultural production has been incredible in that country. And they've done it with the biggest machines that exist. Um, I think you talked to some people there who were still clearing some land, weren't they? Yeah. I it's funny that you would say that too, because I was thinking while I was down here, I would love to come back in 25 years and see what it looks like then. You know, we were in one part of the country where we're on a road and uh, one of our hosts said they remember when that road was paved like in 93 or 94. Uh, and so wherever you go, you're on this two lane road. Um, but, and, and the area that you're talking about Monte Grosso, that, that is such a dominant agricultural area. A lot of people came around the time you were there. Like, like one of the farms we were on started in 1986 uh, it is it, it just, and, and the people there have, may have come from far Southern Brazil and heard of this opportunity. And in some cases they might have tried where others had failed. Maybe the, the first people were ahead of their time just because it take, it takes so much to take that land, which had just been pasture and a bunch of sh shallow trees and to convert that into cropland would take, uh, would be quite an undertaking and to do so without financing would be even more difficult. It was just remarkable how vast uh, everything was there. Uh, you know, and, and because these farms are so big, you know, everywhere you go is is two hours away. But uh, it, it was just amazing to, you know, you, you'd drive past the field and you'd see seven combines in the field. You know, it, it's it's something that, that you know, I, I, I knew it was going to be big, but I knew my mind couldn't imagine how big things actually are now. The uh, key to the future for Brazil, I believe, is infrastructure. Yeah. In the U.S., we take for granted there's a road every mile. And there's paved roads, there's uh, railroads, there's water transportation. But you get into the interior of Brazil, and only a generation ago, there was nothing. I mean, you have to consider that Brazilia, their capital, mm -hmm. was only built in 1960. Mm -hmm. And all of this agricultural production began somewhere in the late 70s, aided by money from Japan and technology from around the world. But I'm really wanting to quiz you on what you saw as their infrastructure and what they told you of getting the crop from the field to export. When you say that Brazil lacks in infrastructure, you also say that realizing that they are the number one exporter of soybeans and five other, you know, beef, so crops and livestock, and it's a it's a top five and four others. Orange juice, coffee is in there. Soybeans is in there, and 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 we would we were down there thinking, man, if they had a railroad, or if they had an interstate or something, 
I I imagine if you flew into the same airport that I did in 1983, I'll bet it looks the same now as it did back then. Uh, we it was a town called Sinop Sinop that probably wow. it probably was was built or certainly grew because of agriculture. And then our hotel was 80 kilometers south in Soriso, S-O-R-R-I-S-O. -R -R -I you know, the whole way down was two-lane road, which I think they paved once and they've been patching it ever since. And it's pretty flat, but um, and thankfully it's pretty flat because you try to pass and there's truck after truck after truck after truck that's in front of you and that's going the other way. So you're about as fast as the slowest truck is in front of you. And every so often then you'd see, you know, I grew up with square miles. I grew up where uh, everything was by sections. Here, all of a sudden, you'd be like, oh, there's the road. And it was a red packed clayish dirt road that would lead to a 50,000 acre farm. And then you go a few miles more and you'd see another road. It, it certainly wasn't. Uh, the system that that I would was so used to, the whole time in Brazil and certainly not in Mato Grosso, I saw one railroad that was east of Brasilia, and didn't see a didn't see a single piece of track in Mato Grosso, and you wonder, you know, you think about the conditions that when the U.S. built its rail system, you know, could we do that again? But I. I also think that there are enough people in Brazil that live in that kind of poverty that if an opportunity would be given to them, they might be able to build a railroad. I don't know how they do that with property rights and everything else today, but I feel like it's something they could do. Did you find that uh, the farmers themselves, and the, the farms are quite large, as you said, yeah. uh, amazingly large by American standards and talking about 40 to 100,000 acres or more, that they, just by private investment, have been doing much of the of the improvement of infrastructure. We, we heard, I heard that very statement, our tour guide. Uh, so I was down there with Comstock Investments. Matthew Cruz, president of Comstock, has, has started going to work there in, I believe, 2001. And he talked about the area where he was, where either you wait for folks to build it or what they did. Finally, the farmers on that road got together and they did the math and they invested in turning a dirt road into a good gravel road. Uh, they didn't even make blacktop, but they certainly improved their infrastructure on their own. And uh, so, you know, people that, you know, if you had 20% of that road, you made 20% of the investment. If you had a small portion of that road, you made a small investment. But everybody did it equally and everybody did it on their own. Uh, and the, the thought was that you you hear these things about, ah, oh, we're going to do this and it's going to get bigger. And, and they've been hearing that for 10 to 15 years. And you kind of wonder, you know, is it going to take place? Like, like the, the airport town sent up. Uh, the airport was on the west side of town. You have to go all the way through town, through town, speed bump, speed bump, roundabout. And then eventually you get to the main road and you start heading south. And the American and me sat there and said, why don't you build an access road and bypass all this? 
maybe they've thought of it, but uh, they, they certainly haven't done it. And it makes you wonder when they're actually going to do it. So the idea that that it's all Tulane, it's all trucks and it's all so, but, but it, you know, like you said, it's, it's the whole area is still 40 years old. Uh, for them well, to also be yeah. a leader worldwide is is really remarkable. We need to look at it in terms of the capabilities and the priorities of their government. Yeah. And Brazil has moved from being a dictatorship to being a, a, a free country, if you will, um, one that uh, then went back to a Trump-like president and then moved away from him. They put their presidents in prison. So they... Uh, they are not exactly a banana republic, but they're not a long ways above that. But they have two of the largest cities in the world. Those places draw in most of their tax money. Oh, and man. so build roads and railroads outside that area uh, does not fit the will of the people. But surprisingly, the wealth of that country, as I see it, comes greatly from those massive areas of agricultural production. So I wonder if they talk to you about anything on how they balance all of that out or they have to surrender the fact that the cities get most of the tax money. <laughs> it sounds like you're talking about Chicago versus downstate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And states are like that. I think Illinois is probably as most pronounced, but New York City does the same thing to that massive area oh, of New York. Yeah. That- didn't have an interstate highway until the 1970s. Uh, well, let me gather my thought here. Yeah, so Rio de Janeiro is so far south in Monte Grosso. We we had to take a connecting flight to get there. You know, it took two planes to get from Monte Grosso to, to Rio. I don't know how it would compare. I feel like it would be going from Denver to New York or something like that, or maybe even farther. Uh, and... I certainly got the feeling that the the farmers there, you know, they they were doing their thing and uh, not certainly not uh, caught up in any goings on in Rio. You know, it 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 really was a a completely different place. But yes, uh, we talk about the wealth, maybe not the wealth, but the strength. We went to a John Deere dealership that last year sold the dealership. They've got I think ten locations. If they don't have 10, they're about to have 10. That that dealership group sold 416 combines. It's one of the five largest dealerships in the world. And, you know, they don't have operating loans and they don't have 30-year notes or anything like that. And they're, they're still able to, to do that. And, and they're continuing to progress. Uh, we had a gentleman on the, the tour who was part of some of that clearing in the 80s and he has gone to another state and uh, they're starting to clear that as well um it's a little bit north so there's only so much they can clear because eventually you get toward the amazon rainforest and and, and the, the that territory uh when, when you get far enough north you only are able to if you own a thousand acres you'd only be able to farm 200 uh, because the rest needs to be maintained as as rainforest. But uh, we, we know of other projects that are taking place where they're taking the Monte Grosso playbook and applying it to other parts of the country. So even more acres and even more 
opportunity for uh, production. You know, yield may not be great, but uh, I imagine that will continue to improve and, and they'll continue to, to make it up in volume. Let's take a moment to talk with Taylor Parker, president of Concept by Iowa Hearing. Taylor, are there widely used medications that can negatively impact our hearing? Great question, and yes, there are. There are over 200 prescribed or over-the-counter medications that can attribute to hearing loss. And, you know, when you're looking, when we're talking about, you know, medications, the average person over the age of seven, or over the age of 55, excuse me, 72% of people over the age of uh, 55 take at least one drug. And two-thirds of all drug reaction, adverse drug reactions, occur over the age of 60. So you're talking almost three-quarters of the you know population over 55 take at least one drug or one medication. You know, we're talking simple drugs from an aspirin regimen. An aspirin regimen, and we're not talking baby aspirin, we're talking regular size aspirin. If you take an aspirin regimen um, five days a week or more, you have an increased risk of hearing loss by 26%. Um, some of the big ones are diuretics, so people that have uh, high blood pressure, kidney disease, um, like the myosin group, you know, erythromycin, vancomycin, that whole myosin group um, can attribute to hearing loss. Um, hydrocodone, um, you know, um, oxycotton, you know, um, Rush Limbaugh is the famous one for that because he, you know, got addicted to the oxycotton and that caused his hearing loss. Then he had to get a cochlear implant. So, you know, and, and he was very honest at, you know, toward the end about what, you know, what caused that. Um, chemotherapy drugs. So if anyone has gone through chemotherapy, chemotherapy wreaks havoc, not only on your body, but on your hearing as well. Um, you know, the little blue pill, little blue pill uh, can attribute to hearing loss. So there are, you know, many different uh, you know, medications, whether they're over-the-counter prescribed, um, that can attribute to hearing loss. So the best thing to do is, is, you know, get with your doctor and the pharmacist to find out what the side effects are, if there are other medications maybe where certain, um, certain side effects are less with one versus another. And it's just having that open dialogue, you know, with your, with your providers to really understand are there, you know, ramifications for the medications I'm taking. And sometimes, there's just, you know, there, there's no other choice but to take the medication, just understanding um, that it can attribute to hearing loss and, and it's something you need to monitor. Thank you, Taylor. Schedule your free hearing screening at Concept by Iowa Hearing. You can reach them at 877-955-4020 or online at iowahearing.com. Here's the logic that they gave me uh, about the crops they grow and the infrastructure they have. They want to only transport valuable crops uh, because they have to, in uh, Mato Grosso, run about uh, three days south to get to uh, the port. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, of course, three days back north, carrying supplies back, et cetera, and one day off and do it again. Uh, so soybeans became the crop they wanted to grow because you can haul out a lot of dollars worth of soybeans. We also, when I was there, found that the cotton farms, of which they are now one of the biggest players in the world in cotton, um, they gin all the cotton right there on the farm and only all out the lint cotton in bales. Mm -hmm. And um, 
now I understand, and I wonder if you've got anything on this, the beef cattle are eating the corn that they grow, and they're trying to haul out only the high-value meat. Do you see that that's happening? I, I didn't see any high-value meat, that's for sure. The, uh, the animals that we saw were not worked like they would be in the U.S. In other words, we went through a feedlot and it seemed like the animals were 900 to 1,200 pounds and the, they were all bulls still. So they they had fillets on the menu at some of the restaurants because that seems to be the best opportunity to have a good piece of meat, but I thought the rest of it was, was lacking. Uh, at least when you come from the United States, maybe if you come from Europe or somewhere else around the world, you're like, oh, this is just fine. But from an American standpoint, I, I, I found it lacking. But but yes, um, uh, I, I would agree with your assessment. And and also what, what you said in there is important because since they don't have rail, the and since they don't have a river system like the U.S. has where you can bring it up the Illinois or the Mississippi River, you have to bring the fertilizer back on truck as well. So, you know, we, we saw this, this farm, I think it was 50,000 acres, part of a group that had 500,000 acres and their fertilizer was in these 225 pound super sacks. You know, there, there was no big bin or there was no huge storage area for that. It was just a pile of, of bags, one on top of the other, uh, that eventually would get spread uh, by by one of their tractors, so that that was really remarkable to see um, how they have to handle their inputs as well as uh, their harvested crops. Uh, and and it makes sense, you know, if you're going to go three days to port, you better be bringing something back and not have an empty truck uh, because that would be quite wasteful. But uh, it it is something how they're uh, how you know there's there's nothing knifed in. There's no there was no, you know, there might be manure that you know people certainly took advantage of, of manure from livestock, but but fertilizing was was much different and uh, uh, similar. Oh, uh, to dry their soybeans or to dry their crops, you know, to get it to the right temperature, they don't have they don't have fans going. They they plant bamboo and eucalyptus trees and they burn the wood to create the heat that's used to dry the beans to the proper moisture content, which uh, was certainly one way to, to do things, but it, it's, it, was, it was quite fascinating when you, when you come from here and you see what goes on down there. Well, you know, you brought up the uh, rivers that we use. If you just go north, out of that production area, you hit the largest river in the world, a river that Panamax vessels can come a thousand miles up and pick up whatever there is because it's that much flow and that deep, the Amazon. Mm -hmm. But yet, as you say, they are not utilizing it. They're going south with most of their production. And we tried to pin them down on this and uh, they just kept saying, well, we're going to have uh, more ports. And we're going to find more ways for the tributaries of this Amazon can be to be used. But you know, that was 20, that was 10 years ago, the last time I heard that line. And it's still uh going south with almost all their production, right? 
you know, if you came out the Amazon, you just make a little left there and you go through the Panama Canal and you're on your way, right? But uh, if you're in if Rio you or, uh, you know, if you're in Sao Paulo, I, I assume you go down and around uh, the southern tip of South America I, or or you're almost to uh, even with South Africa at that point. I don't know if you'd be able to go east or not, depending on who your customer is. But uh I, you know, as we look at it, you know, when you have that river system and you see their river system and think, well, you could, you know, I don't know if, I don't know if it would require a lock and dam system. I don't know if it would flow like uh, south of St. Louis. I, I don't know how that would work, but uh, I'd sure like to send a group of engineers down there and figure it out. Well, I think that the uh, U.S. Uh, is not well served <laughs> to help Brazil. In <laughs> distribution system uh, and exporting because they already uh, get the high value items out of the country. And were it not for the U.S. having this incredible transportation system, um, Brazil would be even more advantageous as a uh, seller because they can sell at a cheaper price. Yeah. Uh, they're, thank they're... God for the roads or roads, et cetera, that we have. But for the Brazilian farmer, I feel kind of bad for them because I thought they were, perhaps you could comment on this, entrepreneurial. They may be big and they may be groups that actually own those farms from southern Brazil is what was being said at the beginning. Very few Americans came in there and did so. There are, in the case of who took you, some people still left from out of the country farming it. But those farmers want to produce at the lowest Cost. They want to be able to export. They want to grow a variety of crops. But um, politically, how was it of their comments about their ability to, to change things in their favor? I don't remember much of that conversation. You know, because these farms are so big, the owner is much more the CEO than what I would think of the farmer. Um, some of them might have 150 employees, some of them have 250 employees, and I got to talk to one of the grandsons on, on one of the farms, and I thought, this guy's not going to run an implement unless he really wants to, but he, he may not have to. Um, but no, I, and I wish I could answer your question better about, um, about their, their feelings toward that. Some of them grew soybeans and corn. Some of them grew soybeans and cotton. And, it, you know, it just seemed like that's what they were going to do, uh, whether that was market advantage or just, you know, you know, who they could easily, what they could easily move or, or sell or, you know, what they had access to. We did visit um, the first straight corn, uh, the first ethanol facility that was uh, made specifically for corn and not sugar cane. Uh, and they're in Monte Grosso, they're thinking, you know, there's a lot of corn down here that doesn't have much value because it's so far away. Why don't we, then they, they started with one facility. They now have three and they're planning to go to six, uh, partly just because the, the, uh, the options aren't as good for the Brazilian farmers. So, uh, we'll, maybe we'll be able to buy corn at a favorable price for us and turn it into a much more valuable commodity that could be used elsewhere and while we were there we got this little gut punch they said that one one of their um byproducts of the ethanol process was corn oil 
that for Monte Grosso, they can get to a location in the central U.S. basically cheaper than what we can do in the central U.S. Yeah. And in um, our elevators, you know, sometimes we would like for the uh, southeastern part of the country to call and and try to get some livestock feed, which can really uh, sweeten our basis in certain parts of the state. And there, that feed's going to come from Brazil this year, most likely, because they can they can get it cheaper. So they have all these things that that we they they have these things that are lacking compared to us, and yet they can still do things. You know, their currency is five times or one fifth of ours, and land values and they don't have to pay their employees as much and you know they 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 have they have some advantages on us that are really noticeable well we can't uh, take the time to get into the complexities of this but i tell you it is an amazing country to watch um uh, argentina as well because mm -hmm. of their cultural stability their biggest problem is their government sound familiar yeah. and as a of that, they can't move at the level of entrepreneurs uh, that we know exist there, uh, be they American or European uh, or the Brazilians themselves. Delos Yonke is my guest. He is a farm broadcaster in Illinois. He knows agriculture in this country. He was exposed to Brazil for 10 days back in January, and I do appreciate your overview of the country from what you saw. There was one thing that happened with me in 1983, and again in 2001, I want to tell you, and you can react to it if you want, mm -hmm. and it's about global climate change. It took out trees over 200 million acres in the course of that time. And when I was there in 83, I recall that they said, it's going to rain at 5 o'clock. <laughs> and I and sure enough, five o'clock, every afternoon, it rained. In 2001, I went back again after they had deforested quite a bit of that area and converted it to cropland. And I asked them, I said, does it still rain at five o'clock? They said, oh, yeah, but it rains a lot harder. Oh. And we got on an airplane and we were actually we were landed. And they said, we're going to sit here through the rain, and then we're going to uh, deplane. And I know it was a, I was in an aluminum tube, but that rain was stout. It was heavy. And California now is saying the same thing of what's happening to them is that because the climate has warmed, the air can hold more water. And by that simple situation creates more problems. And I wonder if it rained at five o'clock or anybody even commented on that when you were. I don't remember that comment. Um, what I what I do remember is that the well, a couple of things. They had they had a tremendous drought in uh, the end of last year, uh, one of the farms we were on started planting soybeans September 16, and the first rain didn't come until December 22. And we were there on January 22, and since then, they had, you know, in that month, they had had 20 inches of rain, including seven and a half in one day. And a lot of it soaked. It didn't necessarily run off. A lot of it soaked. And they, 
anticipate working with something like 80 inches of rainfall over the course of the year. So two, two and a half times what uh, some U.S. farmers would contend with. Um, but in that country, the lost. They have a wet season and a dry season. Yeah, uh, yeah. That area, they don't have a cold and warm. They have wet and dry, and uh, which is beautiful for those people who are harvesting cotton, for example, because they can grow it the full length of the wet season and then harvest it in the dry season. But with other crops, they have more challenge. But rainfall is, uh, of course, what they live and die by and mm -hmm. why those farms are where they are in Brazil. But uh, you're saying that they, too, have deluges of very heavy rains at times. Yeah, yeah. They yeah, to get to to get to 80 inches, it's it's gotta come in buckets sometimes, I would imagine. But uh I, I tell you one thing, uh my my colleague and my my boss, uh Rita Frazier, who you know, uh has used the tagline, the best people work in ag. And I, I tell you, it that is something that goes beyond borders. Uh, we, we were just so impressed and, and just enjoyed our time so much being with Brazilian farmers. They were very hospitable and, and uh, uh, you know, even though we didn't speak the language very much, uh, well, like there was great camaraderie and, and uh, a shared appreciation uh, amongst the, the group. So that, that was, that was really neat. It was, it was nice to go down there and feel welcomed and, and, uh, and you know, just to to be hosted the way before that, I thought that was that was really neat. I I could have spent a lot more time on the farms in Brazil than in the crowd of Rio de Janeiro, certainly. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I have found the loss there and across the world. Farmers have a whole lot in common, and they are hospitable people. And even if you're their competitor, they will welcome you in yeah. and feed you their food and visit with you about all of what they do and want to know what you do. I, uh, I truly find that that is remarkable within the culture that you and I have had the delight uh, and opportunity to exist. Yeah, they were asking us, some people were asking us questions about the election and Biden and Trump. You know, if you would ask us who the, what the office was and who held it in Brazil, we wouldn't know, but you know, around the world, the news is first local, and then it's here's what's going on in, in the U.S. So people around the world are much more tuned into what's going on here than we are uh, what's going on just about anywhere else. I, I found that rather interesting. Absolutely. That is a, a wonderful uh, observation and extremely true that the world does watch us very closely. Well, I appreciate what you talked to me about and uh, an update on Brazil at this time. It looks like they will remain highly competitive if they don't have internal problems. Um, they don't look like they're swinging back to a communist government. They seem like they are moving to a populist, have moved to a populist president. Now back to uh, Lula, who is um, uh, a one who is more of a midline guy. I don't know exactly how to define him because they... I think they put him in prison after he got yeah. out of office the last time. Uh, but it's a colorful place, at least, uh, and uh, carries a tremendous culture. So we'll see moving forward how they are. But I think we can safely say that they will remain a strong competitor of the United States in agricultural production.
I I agree. I you know I think it'll just it'll get bigger and bigger and more and more and and we'll be curious to see what that does with land values and and what that eventually does with with uh, how they invest down there and, and what they're able to do. But uh, it's such a big place, and uh, you know I I feel like once you it, it, you know, they they get about 120, 130 bushel corn. You know, what happens if they go, if they're able to go to 160 or 180? Uh, what kind of changes that will mean for for them and for us and, and for everybody else? You know, I, I'm quite curious to see, you know, what the next 10, 25 years are going to look like. The Los Yonke, farm broadcaster, Illinois, made a trip to Brazil, ported on it on the network and tell us about it here. Thank you very much, Delos, for being with us. Thank you, Ken. Always good to talk to you. Thanks for listening to People in the Know. I'm on the hunt for guests to interview. If you have suggestions, contact me at this email address, kenroot at gmail.com, K-E-N-R-O-O-T at gmail.com. Have a great week. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the starry crown? Good Lord, show me the way. Oh, sisters, let's go down, let's go down, come on down. Oh, sisters, let's go down, down in the river to pray. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the robe and crown? Good Lord, show me the way. Oh, brothers, let's go down, let's go down, come on down. Come on, brothers, let's go down, down in the river to pray. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about